Well, we're in our summer series, and our, this summer series is called The Big Story. And uh, for me this week, the big story was that we have kids camp coming, and our house became kids camp prep central. So if you walked into our dining room, living room, it was like stacked high with stuff everywhere, and we ate in the kitchen where the table is smaller, and our all seven of us crowd around the table and knock glasses off and everything else. But it was, it was great. And uh, one of the things that's been a challenge for me um, with kids camp is that is, I don't know if you know this, but when you have a kids camp, you have to buy the materials before you register the kids so that you have materials to give to the kids because these you, you know, you, we do a theme, and the, you go in and you try to get materials, and they sell out really quickly. And so we have to decide ahead of time how many shirts to buy and how many little handouts for this thing and craft supplies for this or that. And so, um, so this year, uh, Lauren and Karen Broders, they were together praying, and they were praying. We've, we hired Lauren as our camp, kids' camp director, and so they were praying together about kids' camp in April. And they were praying about how many kids should we ask for, or what, how many kids are, should we expect. And she got the number 80, and Karen got the number 80. And so they said, well, 80 is the number. And they came home, and, or Lauren came home, and she said, oh, we're, we're going to have 80 kids this summer. And I said, really? I'm a man of faith. So I said, that's, a, that's an answer of faith that says, really? Well, our first year, we had 36 kids. And that was really awesome. I thought that was really awesome. And we had just enough people, and we had a great camp. Our second year, it grew exponentially, and we had 42 kids. (laughs) And so I looked at that number, 36 to 42. Okay, that's that's good growth. That's like we've added some families, some kids. We put it out at Carnival. And so when Lauren came home and said, we're going to have 80 kids, I said, 80 kids? Where are 80 kids going to come from? Where are all these kids? Like, it's like 60 kids would be a lot more than we grew by the first time. That would be 60 kids. That's a, that's a sleep of faith. And Lauren said, we're having 80. I'm buying 80 shirts. She said it just like that. You know Lauren. That's how she talks. What are you laughing at? No, and she would come home, she would be like, oh, do you think it's okay if I buy 80 of this? And I would say, what about 60? 60 is a good number. And she'd be like, well, we prayed and got the number 80. And I'd be like, well, okay, okay. And so they bought 80 shirts and 80 craft supplies. We rented another room here for more kids. And we have 78 kids signed up. 80? Yeah. Because of my faith, that's why. (laughs) You know, some deep part of me continues to be challenged over my whole Christian journey. And the challenge that I continue to experience is whether or not I'm going to trust God. Whether or not I can trust God. And it's a big question because a lot of our Christian walk following God hinges on trusting God. And so it's a big question, a big thing we wrestle with. As we hit the big story, we look at 
um, you know, we, we started in June. We, were, we went, took a whole month to talk about the image of God and creation. And we talked about how we were made for relationship with God, the living God. And the Trinity was present as we were made in God's image, living in face-to-face perfection. And then we blew it. Humans blew it. Didn't take very long. In rebellion, we chose not to trust the one who loved us, but to trust the liar, the enemy. And in rebellion, we were cast from the garden to live with the consequences and under the curse of sin. And the story goes on that then God chooses a people in Abraham. This guy. It's just this guy, Abraham. God chooses him and chooses a people to demonstrate his glory in and through whom to fulfill his promise of rescue to all of us. Abraham, the father of Isaac, who's the father of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Makes sense. Now, as the family grows into a nation, they become enslaved in Egypt. Maybe you've heard that story. And God calls Moses to deliver them, to go and set my, let my people go. And he goes to the most powerful man on earth, let my people go. And through demonstrations of power, Yahweh leads his people out to the edge of the Red Sea, out of slavery and right to the edge of the Red Sea. And with the Egyptian army behind them, God parts the sea. And they go through on dry land and the Egyptian army destroyed in the flood. And the people of Israel were saved. They were rescued from slavery. And God calls them to the promised land that he'd given to Abraham. And he gives them the law and the commands, and he leads them a long way, the long way around, because the first time they went, they didn't trust God, and so they had to go around again and went all the way around through the desert, the 40-year version, to finally get to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And when they get there, there's all these incredible stories of victory. Jericho, a city where the walls just fall down. Or the the story where the sun stands still during the battle so that they can win. And there's defeats too. There's the story where they go up to fight this little town called Ai, or however you say it. It's a strange little name for a town. And they go and they don't seek God and they get beaten and they have to go and seek the Lord about what's wrong. Or the Gibeonites, these people who come and they're like, oh, we come from so far away, will you make a treaty with us? And really they were these tricky people just from down the road. And they didn't seek the Lord, and again they got tricked, and they experienced defeat along the way. And that's where we pick up our story. Super exciting. We're in the big story. And our little story in the big story today is found in Joshua 11, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Your sermon today is brought to you by Joshua chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. If you're into that sort of thing. I will read it for you. If you don't have a Bible, if you do, you can turn there with me to Joshua chapter 11. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this about all that the Israelites were doing, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon. Now, just, I'm just going to pause. There's going to be a whole bunch of weird names and weird places. Just bear with me, okay? 
Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this. He sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph. Akshaph, yeah. And to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arba south of the Chinneroth, and in the lowlands, and in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah, and they came out with all their troops. That's really the point of it. They came out with all their troops, a great horde, which we believe since we heard all these people being named. A great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces, and they came and they encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Fire, fire, fire. There's always an echo when God talks. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mezrephoth Mame, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until they left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung the horses and burned their chariots with fire. This is a great Mennonite chapter for us to study this morning. God wants your whole trust. I could call it your... Following with everything all in trust. Your whole trust. That's what God is looking for. Before we um, freak out, some people are stuck on the hamstringing the horses thing, I think. Maybe. We're like, oh, hamstring the horses. What is God down with animal cruelty? And we're going to like start making picket signs and stuff. Just, I just want to calm you. And just let's talk about that for a second. Because I think it's good to understand what's happening. And so um, to hawk or hamstring a horse is a surgical procedure where you cut the sinew of the back legs so it renders the animal incapable of speed. So it can't run at full gallop anymore. Which, on the one hand, you might be like, that is so cruel. Except for in a place where horses are used in battle and they are maimed and wounded and hurt and killed to be used as a farm horse for the rest of their life or a cart horse or some kind of working horse, that would be way better, way preferable if you were a horse than being used as a war horse and being killed or maimed in battle. So let's just put that out there. Okay? Now, here's the part I don't understand. Here's the part I struggle with. You have an army so large... Against you, it's described as the sand on the seashore, which is a great way to describe a number that you can't count. They send the scout out. How many? How many people are we facing? He comes back. Sand on the seashore. They're like, so ten thousand, twenty thousand. No, sand on the seashore. I got to fifty and I lost track. I can count past whatever it was, a thousand, two thousand. Like the number is, it's so incredibly huge, and so. You are going to this battle that you're going to win, and you get the plunder. That's what happens in battle. So you get their swords and their shields when you beat them. You get their armor. You get their horses, their chariots. You get all their stuff. 
that's how it works in battle. I don't understand. Why would you burn the chariots? Why would you make the horses useless? We, we could use them. Couldn't we? Doesn't that make sense? It doesn't seem very prudent or wise for us to do this. Like, get rid of this incredible thing that, that we could use. I think sometimes it feels like God doesn't know there's an easier way. I, like, I want to go up and tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, you know, you, we could do it like this. It feels like God doesn't know that because he picks a harder way. And you think, God, don't you know that there's an easier way? There's still land and people to defeat. In Joshua chapter 13, so two chapters after our passage, God says to Joshua, there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. And then he goes through this list. This is the land that remains, the land of the Philistines and Geshurites from the Sihon River to the east of Egypt to the territory of Ekron in the north, all that it counted as Canaanite, the territory of the five Philistine rulers in Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and that of the Avites to the south, and all the land of the Canaanites from Era to the Sidonians as far as Aphek, and the region of the Amorites to the land of the Gabalites, and all of Lebanon to the east, and from Baal Gath, below Mount Hermon to Lebo Hamath. Sounds like a big job. Just saying. It sounds like still a big job to be done here. And in Joshua 17, 16, they're going to fight the powerful Canaanites who have iron chariots. And in the next book, in Judges, they're going to be oppressed by the king of Canaan, Sisera, and their 900 chariots for 20 years. Like, wouldn't, it, wouldn't clearing the land go quicker if we had chariots? You know what? Here's, this is just my thought. We could take one of the tribes, the tribe of Gad. Well, I mean, don't know much about Gad, so we could just pick them. They could be like the elite horse unit. We could give them all these horses, and we could say, make it your job to figure this out. You, you can be the cavalry unit who comes in like the Navy SEALs with horses. We could do that. Why wouldn't we do that? There's still a lot to be done. Here's why. God gave a warning. God says in Deuteronomy 17, when he's giving the law to Moses, this is what God says. Make sure, this is in the message, make sure you get yourself a king whom God, your God, chooses and make sure he doesn't build up a war machine amassing military horses and chariots. He must not send people to Egypt to get more horses. But still, I mean, why not? God seems a little bit conservative here, doesn't he? Like he's just on and on his, little, his plan. I feel like it makes more sense if we use this stuff. Like the country has to be protected, doesn't it? Doesn't, like maybe not a war machine, but maybe just like for protection. King David, pretty famous king in the line of the kings of Israel. King David made two major mistakes in his life. First major mistake, maybe you've heard the story about the queen about Bathsheba. So David sees a woman, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant. She's actually the wife of one of his friends, his soldiers, one of his mighty men. And so he sends that guy into battle, gets him killed, murders his friend marries the woman. It's a big no-no. You can understand why that's a big problem, right? The second major thing David gets in trouble for in his kingship, 
is a census. Bathsheba and a census. Do those equal? Do those make sense to you? I mean, David wants to count his fighting men. That's what happens. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. Instead of being rewarded for his concern and his planning and his foresight, he's punished. So what's the deal? Doesn't, doesn't it make sense to you that a king would know how many soldiers he has? Wouldn't, doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't he know what size of army he's dealing with? What's wrong with counting? Shouldn't he be prepared? Then we move on to his son, and here's where things start finally making sense for you and I, who are finding all of this a bit hard. Solomon, the wisest man in the world. King Solomon, arguably. He understood deterrence through numbers. This is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. Finally, he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Solomon gets it. He understands the importance of self-determination and planning. And he enjoyed peace in his time. He had wealth and power and achievement and recognition and a military to deter anyone who was thinking about taking it. He was a wise man for all the ages. You know what he wasn't? He wasn't a man after God's heart. He wasn't a man after God's heart. As we look through the Bible, you guys, we're hard-pressed to find examples where God uses the best and brightest for his plans and purposes. Actually, over and over, it seems like God delights in doing things his own way. Abraham, this old guy who's like great credit is that he just believes God will do anything. It's like, what's so awesome about Abraham? Well, he just believes God will do anything. What else? That's all. That's it. He just believes God will do anything. Or Moses, this reluctant stutterer who goes and speaks for God and leads a nation and goes up against the most powerful man on earth. Moses, well, he's like a runaway murderer and shepherd guy who stutters, who can't, can't speak. The defeat of Jericho, the walls are so thick, chariots can go around them on top. How do you, build, how do you siege, siege defeat a, a city like that? It just, the walls just fall down as they go around in silence and use trumpets. This is crazy. Or Jesus, who builds a kingdom that will never end, and he does it using fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and some former prostitutes. We're left with the clear conclusion that God is looking for something particular. Something in particular. It's not an empire. It's not new weapons tech. It's not a brainiac hero general. It's not mountains of gold or victories. It's not mega churches or big buildings. It's not great power or numbers or looks or intellect or even correct theology. 
What is God looking for? What does God want? God's plan is different from mine. It's not an elite chariot unit. It's not more horse or cavalry. If you want to know God's plan, you can read it in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. This is what it says. This was God's strategic plan for how they were going to defeat the enemy. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, that's like just a given, you shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the plan. This is the plan. When you see all of these things in front of you, how are you going to move forward? Because God is with you. That's how. What? God's plan involves trusting a God who is with us. And this is almost always harder than the way we would do it ourselves almost always harder than how I would choose to do it myself because relationship is, is harder than a formula. It does, it, it's not like a formula. I never wanted to be a church planter. If you've been here very long, you've probably heard me say this. I didn't want to do this. I didn't think I could. I didn't think I measured up to my idea of what a church planter's like, their personality and their gifts. And all their ideas for what they can do in making a new church. I didn't feel that. I didn't experience any of that. But God spoke to us, prompting us and giving us dreams and different people dreams and scripture verses and confirmation through the community of faith, through people coming and saying we want to be part of it, through an elder board at our church who said we want to support you and send you out through leaders in networks and places who affirmed, yes, you are called to do this and you're supposed to do this. So there's no grand plan here. There's no formula we follow. There's no six-point strategic vision. You guys, it's just trusting that the God who's faithful to start something will finish it. That's what we're trusting. And this God has displayed his faithfulness for thousands of years. His stats are on record. That's the Bible. He doesn't let down those who trust him with everything. But God wants your whole heart. God wants your whole heart. That's the first command. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that's how your salvation began. If you're a Christian and you're sitting here, you, you received salvation, you experienced salvation in God. And that was faith or trust. And the way it works is that you were far away and up to your neck in mire, and then Jesus came and found you. Not because you were good or clean or talented, but just because he loved you first. And you trusted in Jesus. You rested in his perfect righteousness, believing that he is enough. And then if you've been around for a little while, you know sometimes that 
changes. Paul writes to the church in Galatia about this happening to them. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's still about faith and trust. So now you know what God wants. He wants your trust. Everything. All in. Psalm 20, verse 7. Maybe you've seen this. They put this on plaques sometimes. It says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, do you see what this means? Do you see the context of this verse now? We trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Now, if you're like me, you might understand this concept very well and practice it very seldom. It's just a problem we have. I think many of us need to repent of the sin of holding on to our horses and chariots. To holding on to a life that we said we would give up to no gods and idols of security. Isaiah 44 verse 8 has been churning around since I read it this week, early this week in my devotion time, churning as I meditate on it. This is what it says. God says, is there any God besides me? And Isaiah responds, no, there is no rock. I know not one. No other rock. I know not one. Over and over, I just keep hearing, no, there's no other rock. There's no other security. I don't know any other place that is secure like Jesus. So what are you counting on? What do you count on for your security? Is it your retirement? Is it your savings account? Is it your reputation? or your accomplishments, or your ability, that's super secure. Your health, your education, your friends, your family, your spouse, all these things can be taken from you. That's, they're not secure. There's a difference between saying you trust God and actually trusting God. This is the painful part. There's a difference between saying you trust God and actually trusting God. Do you know uh, this past year, someone broke a record climbing El Capitan, which is a really famous rock. It's in all of the... Go back. Is there a picture before this? The background of this is El Capitan. It's on your Mac. If you have a Mac, it was or is on your... Mac background. This is a really famous... Oh, okay, no, it's not. That, it was before, maybe. The old one. Anyway, famous rock. People climb it. All different ascents they take, take to climb it. It's a really challenging climb. Even the easiest parts of this rock are super challenging. Okay? So when they're climbing and they're trying to do a speed record, the, the best times are like around four days. They, they like do it in teams, and you work together, and you try to shave off a few minutes to getting faster at making this climb. 
Last June, Alex Honolt, so the guy in the next picture, he climbed it in a record time. Three hours and 56 minutes. Three hours and 56 minutes. So that's not a typo that I just said. How is this even possible? There's different kinds of climbing, if you understand this. So there's climbing where you go and you're climbing and you're all roped up and your partner's holding. And at a really challenging part, you put in a pinion and you swing up and you use the rope a little bit to help you for some really challenging parts. Okay? That's called climbing. Free climbing is where you climb and you don't use the ropes to help you at all. You just climb and your partner's only holding the weight of the rope just so that if you fall, you won't die. Okay? That's free climbing. Really hard. Alex, he did something called free solo, which means he doesn't have any ropes. He just climbs. He climbed El Capitan with no ropes. He just went up and climbed. And he didn't stop till he was done. And that's how you climb El Capitan in three hours and 56 minutes. I won't be racing to follow him. Four days or four hours. The trust God is inviting us to is one of letting go of our security. Our security in all sorts of things. Backups for our backups. I trust you, God, but I have a backup for my backup for my backup. And I trust you. Why does God bring the Israelites to the Red Sea? Of all the ways he could lead them, let's go to the dead end. That's a good idea. So that I can part the sea. Trusting God will require everything from us, but you know what? He is secure. That's the beautiful part of it. He is secure. This isn't easy, but it's the most secure place we can put our trust is in God. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Or Romans 10, 11, as the scripture says, Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So the promise is, we will never be forsaken and we will never be put to shame if we trust him. And when I think about that, I picture heaven. I picture the crowds in heaven as people arrive. This is totally not, this is just in my mind and I have a big imagination. So just in my mind's imagination of heaven, there's this big crowd and people are coming in and the crowd is there and, and everyone gets hushed as certain people come in. Now, I picture there's people on earth that, you know, we might say, oh, that's good, good for you, you trusted God, and then we go home and we're like, oh, that's idiotic, whoa, you sold your house and drove around America, that's kind of crazy. What, you carried a cross around Victoria on your back? What, and quit your job? That's crazy. What, you stood up in front of your class and told everyone you were Christian and shared the good news? That's crazy. You guys, when these people walk into heaven, it will get hushed. And all of heaven will say, oh, hey, 
This is some of them who trusted him with everything. And they will never be put to shame. Maybe here where we don't understand and we don't see, but those who trust him with everything will never be put to shame. And in that multitude of heaven, they will have honor. They might get there and be like, it didn't work out. Do you know how badly that worked out for me, that decision? Heaven will say, oh, it didn't work out. We could see it. Oh, no, 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 no. You trusted. You guys, there's a king in the Bible named Hezekiah, and he was one of the good kings in a long line of horrible kings, kings that were bad, who compromised, and they worshipped the latest gods, and they corrupted God's people to follow those gods. Hezekiah was not like that. And in 2 Kings verse 18, or chapter 18, verse 5, it says this, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, and there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Whoa, that's an amazing thing to say. I want someone to write that about me. That would be, that's insane. No one like him before or after. What? This is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king, and the Assyrian Empire includes Israel. And if you've been here before and I told you about Assyria, the way they managed their empire was not like the Romans who built roads and brought civilization and brought order and justice. The Assyrians were not like that. The Assyrians were like, burn a city, kill as many people, torture, rape, hurt them so badly, they all will surrender. And when we leave, you will pay us tribute And you will never want us to come back. Because if we come back, it will be worse. That was the Assyrian Empire. So you sent your tribute because you never wanted them to come back. Hezekiah decides they're going to throw off the yoke of the Assyrians. So what happens? The Assyrians show up with their army outside of Jerusalem. It's a siege. Sennacherib, this general, gets up and he starts shouting these taunts. You trust Hezekiah? You trust in your God? No, 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 no. Let me tell you something. It's like chapters of his taunts. This is what he says. If I I will give you 2,000 horses, if you could put riders on them, how can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? He taunts them. You don't have anything. You don't have horses, you don't have chariots, you don't have riders. You've got nothing. Hezekiah goes to the temple and he tears his robe and he lays down. He says, I trusted you. I'm trusting you. This is you. You have to do something. You know how that story ends? Let me summarize. One angel 185,000 dead Assyrians. One dead king, Assyrian king, assassinated in his own temple by his seditious sons. In this story, there are zero chariots that matter. Zero horses that matter. But a man who would trust God. You guys, I'm not going to lie to you. There are easier roads. 
but none will be as beautiful. None will be as beautiful. So you're invited. There's an opportunity for you to lay down your anxiety over maybe your adult kids or your finances or your debt or your desire to have a spouse someday or your debilitating pain or your recent diagnosis or your long-time depression, your job, your future, your security, your reputation, your accomplishments, your recognition, your status, to bring it and to lay it before the Lord. This is the opportunity we have. Because God wants your whole trust. The following with everything all in kind of trust. So if you want a life that's really in control, then I'd go for the chariots and horses, and I would say, this probably isn't the God for you. And I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. I'm saying, this God is not about chariots and horses or your control. But if you want a full life in relationship with a living God who loves you, then you will have to choose to trust him and walk where he leads you and watch time after time as he comes through. So I'm going to pray, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. Lord, uh, this is one of those messages that, um, God, when I preach it, I feel like I shouldn't say these things because I don't know how to live them. And yet I believe they're true. And Lord, even as I went through the sermon early this morning, I wept through it. Because God, it's so hard. And I see people that I love struggling with how to trust you, how to walk this out. And it's hard. It's not always easy. And God, I feel like um, as we come, as we read these verses, as we meditate on them, that you are the rock. There is no other rock. That you don't let us down. That we'll never be put to shame if we trust you. God, that we could make our home there. We could hold on to these things. Knowing that you gave your life to reconcile us. That Jesus, you said you are the solid rock. We can fall on you or we could run into you. So I pray, Jesus, that you would come now, you would give us courage. You'd soften our hearts. God, that we could respond to what you're stirring in us. And that you would move here. I can't, I can't move people. You could move people, though. You could change situations. You can bring healing. You can save So we're looking to you this morning, God. Would you come and would you do a work in us that we would be transformed more like you before we go? Amen.